Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk here to welcome you to Valley Writers Read. Tonight, we're privileged to listen to a story by a retired airline pilot, Jim Benelli, who currently lives up in the Sierra near beautiful Shaver Lake. The name of Jim's story is Spaghetti Farming in Kansas. And here he is, Jim Benelli, to read Spaghetti Farming in Kansas. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru Spaghetti Farming in Kansas J. Nicholas Worthmore was a young man of enormous wealth. He reeked of success. It it just oozed out of his pores. He was very pleased with himself and his accomplishments, and he did nothing to hide his vanity. He was famous in his native New York City as ruthless, cold, merciless, unfeeling, and calculating. His name was a legend on the street. His handprints would have been preserved in cement if they did such things there. But it didn't take the permanence of immovability to seal the legacy of Nicholas Worthmore. He rewrote the rules of ethics in the world of finance. The street's largest brokerage house was under his CEO-ship during the stock market crash of 2008. But through the magic of the meticulous scheming clauses in his contract, covering bonus and severance packages, he floated peacefully to the surface of the Hamptons on a glorious, magnificent golden parachute. As the bricks of the stone and glass skyscraper that once housed his penthouse office littered the financial streetscape of what was once the most bountiful cornucopia of wealth in the world, he escaped without any regrets and smiled all the way to the bank, the Swiss bank. Oh, he certainly deserved the $63 million package attached to the shroud lines of the parachute. He had done wonders to improve the corporation's bottom line, not to mention his own bottom line. His stockholders saw their wealth increase a hundredfold under his business miracles. His executives wallowed in streams of bonus money that seemed to flow without end. His marvelous inventions of investment instruments had proved almost magical in sucking enormous sums of cash from retirement funds from all over the world. It bothered him not one iota that the teachers' retirement funds had no money left for the poor old retired folks to live on. They were broke, ruined, and penniless. Widows and orphans would be kicked out of their homes. It wasn't his fault. It was fate and therefore it was meant to be. He slept like a baby. In fact, he was happy to be free to see the world, start anew, or regain his vigor. His millions were resting comfortably in Switzerland, while he kept a few hundred thousand handy for spending money. A vacation with his wife Penny was long overdue. They had traveled the world in a corporate jet for the last few years, lavishing in spas, soaking in mud baths in Greece, skiing in Innsbruck, and enjoying the theater in London, not to mention big-game camera safaris in Africa. That was yesterday. It's over now, and time for something new and different. Nick and Penny sat down to Martinis and Oysters Rockefeller at their Trump Tower condo on Fifth Avenue to plan a vacation that was new and different exciting and alive. Nick used the word adventurous, and Penny liked the sound. They had never set foot in the vast wasteland that was mid-America. The flyover states between the Allegheny River and the Rocky Mountains were just an intriguing blur to Nicholas. He had only seen them from 40,000 feet from the jet. It might be fun to go exploring the little hick towns with funny names, like Kansas City, Wichita, and Wyoming. 
they could travel incognito and mingle with the little people. They could hide their great wealth and prominence and try to blend in with the natives. After the fourth martini, it was agreed on. They would take a road trip across the United States, probably taking two or three days to San Francisco and a couple of days back to New York. Maybe they would stay in quaint little bed and breakfast houses and spas along the route. They would pack tonight and hit the road tomorrow. They will travel light with only two Louis Vuitton alligator bags each. The jaguar hummed happily as the two adventurers chased their next dream. The first night found the Worthmores barely out of the state of New York. Surely by tomorrow they would be crossing the Mississippi River and into Colorado or whatever state is over on the other side of the Big Muddy. They rolled on and on, and after three days and two nights in Motel Sixes, found themselves finally crossing the Kansas state line. Nick and Penny had no idea that Kansas was so far from New York. It only took an hour to get from JFK to the Mississippi in the jet. Why is it taking so long now? Spending nights near the freeway with the rumble of 18-wheelers did nothing to add to Penny's idea of luxury. It seemed more like motel hopping and reminded her of college. The fourth day found them motoring farther into the western frontier. They finally got a good night's sleep, and they were starting to accept the fact that the United States was larger than it seemed when looking at the map. They were looking forward to seeing Kansas, and they remembered stories of Buffalo Bill, Boot Hill, and things like that. And maybe they would see some cool souvenir stands. Soon they were humming along at 75 miles per hour, happy and carefree. Just as the off-ramp for Enterprise Kansas came into view, every light on the Jaguar's dash glowed brighter than Penny's six-carat diamond, two rubies and an emerald. Nick knew nothing about cars or engines except to drive them, but this was serious, he could tell. He was losing power fast in steam or smoke or something horrible was pouring out of the car from front to back. He did just like the race car drivers do, and decided a pit stop was in order. He eased up on the gas and coasted the injured jag around the bank curve of the off-ramp and eased her into Enterprise. Penny was fit to be tied. What the heck is happening? Are we going to crash? We are going to die right here in the sticks, aren't we? Be honest with me, Nick. We're burning. We're crashing, screamed Penny. She was crying hysterically and beginning to throw a hissy. Lady Luck was riding with the New Yorkers, because dead ahead was the most welcome blue neon sign announcing Enterprise Ford. The jag coasted in with smoke pouring out of every crack, boiling, snorting, and belching fiery backfarts. Nick Easter into the service bay, filling the shop with the unmistakable odor of antifreeze. Penny sat in the car, petrified, and dabbed at her swollen eyes with a pink lace hanky. She was sobbing and barely able to catch her breath. But she was, oh, so happy, just to survive such a horrifying, dreadful experience. She had never seen anything like it. Howdy, I'm Buster Jones, service manager right here at Enterprise Ford. Let's let her cool down a bit, and then I'll see what's going on in there under that there hood, said the friendly mechanic. Buster was wiping his hands on a red rag. Where is the Jaguar dealership, my good man? I'll call their service rep to come get us right away, Nick said, looking right through Buster as if he was glass. Sorry, my friend, smiled the big affable guy. I think there's one in Kansas City, but I, I don't really know. Uh, just give me a few minutes, and we'll see what's going on. Maybe maybe we can fix her right here. The very thought of a Ford mechanic touching his Jaguar repulsed Nick. What could a country bumpkin named Buster know about fine automobiles? There were very few alternate ideas opening up in this disaster. His options were becoming very narrow indeed. In reality, he had no choice and he knew it. 
He and Penny would simply have to go to the nearest Starbucks and wait. It's so dreadful. Howdy, can I help? I'm Giuseppe Bandini. I see from your license plates that you folks are from back east. Welcome to Enterprise. And what can I do to help, my friends? The soft, deep voice came from a new red Ford F-150 pickup as Giuseppe paused before leaving the service bay. Well, I hate to impose, but we would certainly welcome a ride to the nearest Starbucks, and of course we would be willing to pay you for your time, Nick mumbled as he slid his tasseled alligator loafers out of the driver's side and setting a foot in Kansas for the first time in his life. I would be only too happy to take you and a nice lady to the nearest Starbucks. But you see, my friend, that would be in Wichita, more than a hundred miles west of here. Please, be my guest. Join me for coffee at McDonald's. Nick could not believe a total stranger would invite him to coffee. He left his cell phone number with Buster, and he and Penny climbed aboard the big red pickup. There was something different about Giuseppe. He was tall and tan, with a pencil-thin mustache. He had coal-black hair, slightly gray at the temples, olive skin, and dark brown eyes. The eyes, they had a slight twinkle, a barely perceptible twinkle, but it was there nonetheless. He spoke slowly, deliberately, and eloquently. Penny could not help but notice another curious thing upon climbing into the leather seats in the deluxe truck. It was a brass plaque on the dashboard. And yes, Nick noticed it at the same time. To my good friend Giuseppe, thanks for the good advice. T.B. Pickens. Penny was first to speak. The word spurted out of her mouth along with the smell of juicy fruit. Do you know T. Boone Pickens? Sure do, ma'am. He gave me this nice truck out of gratitude for a little business venture that made us both a couple of bucks. I tried to refuse, but I could see he was determined. Said he wouldn't have it any other way. Sure didn't want to hurt the guy's feelings, so here it is. And it's a good one, too. Mind if I ask what kind of advice you could give to Pickens? Nick lost all forms of politeness. Curiosity got the best of his good manners. Three hot coffees, two Big Macs, a fish witch, and fries all around. Penny carried them to the corner booth, and like all the booths, it had bright red fiberglass seats, hard as rocks. She had never seen the interior decor of a McDonald's restaurant. She examined every detail with the practice eye of a woman who appreciated architectural digest and fine interior decorator details. The local lunch clientele could not help but notice her. The place was filled with the usual assortment of local hicks, and everyone turned and stared, making no attempt to hide their curiosity. Penny certainly stood out. Her clothes screamed, New York, New York! The unmistakable scent of Estee Lauder white linen easily overpowered the French fry oil. She clutched her Gucci purse protectively as she slid in beside the man. Nick's curiosity was about to get the best of him. In fact, it was eating his guts out. He could care less what McDonald's looked like. He wanted to know just what kind of a business deal this small-town hick had with T. Boone Pickens. He did not want to interrupt, but he did. He had to. He could wait no longer. You were going to tell us about T. Boone Pickens, Giuseppe. Oh, yes. Uh, sorry, I, I almost forgot. Well, oh, T. and me, we invested in a little business venture, a spaghetti farm just a few miles west of here. Just a little spread, a couple thousand acres, more or less. Nick was dumbstruck. Just in his cell phone sang a little song demanding his immediate attention. Answer it, you jerk, Penny chimed in, trying to hurry him. Nick, Buster here. Got some good news and some bad news. 
His voice paused as he laughed at his own joke. What do you want first, the good? Okay, here it is. The fan belt broke on your car. We don't stock no Jaguar belts, but that there belt is the same as the extractor drive on a John Deere combine. An Enterprise tractor has the belt. We sent Junior over on his bicycle to pick it up. Here's the bad news. It's going to cost you about 75 bucks, but we'll have it done in an hour. Nick could see no bad news here. In fact, to him it was great news. They would be rolling soon and on their way. Spaghetti farming. Did I hear you right? Nick thought he must have misunderstood. Sure did, my friend. I said spaghetti farming. Nick tried not to appear stupid, but it had never occurred to him to question just where spaghetti came from. He didn't know it grew on farms. As far as he could tell, it came from Italian restaurants, of which New York had its share. After their coffee was finished, Giuseppe drove the New Yorkers back to Enterprise Ford. Buster was waiting, his big oily hand resting on the Jag's windshield. After settling his bill with an American Express Super Platinum card, he turned to thank his new friend. Thank you, but you still haven't told us about your spaghetti farm, and I am terribly interested, my good man. You see... I have always wanted to be a farmer or, or a rancher or maybe a wine grape grower. I know some movie stars have wineries, and I think I would like that, said the most grateful Nick. Would you nice folks show me the great honor of being the guest of my wife Maria and me at the ranch for tea? $75 plus 4% sales tax later, the jag was good as new. And Enterprise Ford had even given her a complimentary wash job. The New Yorkers were soon rolling west on Kansas Route 35 when the sign over the gate caught their eye. Pasta La Vista. This must be the place. Giuseppe and Maria waved hello from the white banister surrounding the Victorian front porch. She was a small lady, rather dainty, actually, not at all what one might expect to find on a big Kansas farm. Her beautiful gray hair was pulled back into a ponytail. The print dress fit snugly. It was a bit long, and her slender legs ended in Birkenstocks. The scene was straight out of Norman Rockwell. The house was sky blue with white shutters and gingerbread trim. The wicker table and porch swing welcomed the visitors with Kansas hospitality. Iced tea in frosty glasses with a wedge of lemon was served and made the 90-degree temperature seem almost resort-like. A warm breeze brushed the cottonwood trees. The Worthmores were invited to lunch and readily accepted the Bandini's country hospitality. The table was set on the shady side of the huge porch, and while Maria was setting the table, Penny looked on helplessly. The hostess moved smoothly and almost silently as she spread the flowered tablecloth. She had an unusual flair of sophistication, quite unexpected on a farm. But then Penny had never seen a farm except on Green Acres. Nick and Giuseppe stood at the banister and gazed out over the thousands of acres of little green plants, waving happily in the sunny breeze. Giuseppe pointed out the farthest field. That's Linguini over there, and to the west is the Fettuccini. Then closer in is the Rigatoni. As far as Nick could see, they all looked alike. But to Nick, a plan is just something you send to the hospital. He had plenty of questions, but just then Maria rang a little silver bell, announcing the readiness of the table. The first course started with a delicate spinach salad sprinkled with faded cheese and scattered with walnuts, served on a chilled plate, and accompanied with Sauvignon Blanc, served in a plastic glass. When that course was finished, Maria cleared the table. It was time for Giuseppe to serve the main course. He entered with a flare, setting a sterling silver bowl of steaming pasta at a sideboard. 
He dished each of the guests a generous helping of the spaghetti into individual little silver bowls, serving the New Yorkers first, then Maria, and finally himself. He took the white towel off his arm and sat down. Before starting, he led the table and sang grace. Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, he said with his head bowed. After the grace, he picked up his bowl and asked the others to do the same. He swished the bowl of spaghetti, savoring the fine aroma and commenting on its perfect texture. Each piece perfectly formed as if by God himself. 1998 was one of our best vintages, an extremely bountiful year. It was a very dry spring, followed by summer storms with plenty of thunder and lightning, perfect for the baby plants to grow slowly and mature into fine pasta. We reserve it for our closest friends. Enjoy, said the big Italian. Nick was brimming over with questions, firing them between bites of the delicious noodles, sucking them in with a slight slurp, and wiping his chin with a linen napkin. What the heck does lightning and thunder have to do with making the plants grow? Didn't you mean rain? Giuseppe talked with his fork in one hand, his knife waving in the air with the other. Mitosis was his one-word answer. Mitosis? questioned Nick. Maria cleared the spaghetti bowls off the table after everyone had finished their second helping of the succulent treat of the palate. The scientific explanation would have to wait. It was now time for dessert. The sweet smells of baking were wafting through the screen door, coming from a homemade pie cooling in the kitchen. The delicious apple pie was soon served with vanilla ice cream and dribbled with cognac. Nick searched his memory for the word mitosis, but the meaning eluded him. Biology was not a required subject at Harvard School of Business when he got his MBA. Giuseppe went on to explain the effect of thunder and lightning on the growing spaghetti plants. The thunder, you see, excites the protoplasm during the interphase stage of the cell division, causing the metaphase to escape from the spindle. This, in turn, leads to the telophase, and as we all know, that completes the process. During this excitement, the squiggly noodles begin emerging, eager to mate with the nearest zygote. This is a method discovered by my great-grandfather, Gino Bandini, in Italy in 1870. I have searched the world over to find a climate where this phenomena is possible, and I am happy to announce that right here in Kansas is the only place where spaghetti can be grown commercially. Every night when I say my bedtime prayers, I thank our Heavenly Father, the Blessed Virgin, and all the saints in heaven for my good fortune. Nick was flabbergasted. Giuseppe was not only a genius in the field of plant science, but he was a religious man. Nick was indeed fortunate to discover this amazing man. He was definitely a man who could be trusted. As the two men walked slowly through the house, sipping an aperitif, Nick spotted an interesting framed photograph on the piano. It was Giuseppe, T. Boone Pickens, and Warren Buffett standing in front of a beautiful, huge, rustic log cabin with tall pine trees and a creek bubbling past. The men were all smiles. "'How do you know these guys?' Nick asked. His eyes were green with envy. He cultivated friends the same way some men collect rare automobiles. "'Well, you see, we were partners, so to speak, and, the, and then we became friends.' They come here every fall to hunt jackalopes and uh, stay in the lodge. Mighty good eating, too, them jackalopes, especially when they're barbecued. We have this here little lodge down by the creek, and the boys and me, we spend a few days at the cabin doing uh, guy things. We sit around the campfire at night, we drink a few beers, tell stories, you know, that sort of thing. 
The guys like the peace and quiet. No cell phones, nothing, just peace and quiet. Say, uh, Giuseppe, what would it take for me to buy your ranch? I might, and I repeat, might, be interested. That is, if the price is right. Nick busted in, changing the subject completely. Giuseppe was dumbstruck. The remark came out of the blue, and he had not been expecting it. Oh, I couldn't. No, I wouldn't sell. Heck no, no way. No, nope. She's not for sale. The profits just keep rolling in. You see, it keeps Boone, Warren, and me, and several other of my closest friends in pocket change, so to speak. They like my spaghetti farm, and they have invested with me in seed money. And now the money just keeps rolling in. Each harvest just gets larger than the last. And the world just can't seem to get enough spaghetti. We're just now going global. China is bigger than we ever imagined it in our wildest dreams. We don't sell them spaghetti. When we ship it there, we call it noodles. And I hear they eat it with little sticks, but I really don't know. Well, said the New Yorker, uh, perhaps I could provide a bit of venture capital, if you know what I mean. The two men walked slowly around the huge shady porch. They were enjoying the commanding view of the vast fields of green spaghetti plants. The fields stretched for miles and miles as far as the eyes could see from horizon to horizon. Beautiful green leaves with little blooms on top, waving happily in the gentle Kansas summer breeze. See that row of trees? Way, way over yonder? Well, that's a hedgerow. That's Boone's thousand acres of Bucatoni on the west and Warren's thousand acres of Spotsil on the east. I have the section on the south fallow for now. I, I might consider letting you in on that thousand if you don't mind being next to Boone and Warren. I need more acreage in Rigatoni. I, I just can't seem to produce enough. Yes, he said. Rubbing his chin, that, that might just work out. We each put in a few bucks to maintain that, that hedgerow to keep the wild turkeys from walking in and eating our crop. We call that a hedge fund. Uh, Nick was glad that the conversation was now turning to words that he knew the meanings of. He tried to avoid technical words like mitosis. Let's say, just for the sake of conversation you understand, that I am interested in a small speculative capital investment in seed money. Just what could I expect in return, and what is the risk-to-capital ratio? There is absolutely, positively, no risk involved, my friend. None, period. These plants produce like clockwork. They have never failed. They just can't fail. Every year it just gets better and better. We just keep getting bigger and bigger, and now we are actually too big to fail. The world needs more spaghetti, and we can provide more and more. The good Lord up above provides us the thunder that we need, and the plants just keep spitting out spaghetti. And that means money, 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 and more money. It can't possibly fail. Last week, we even gave our tractor drivers bonuses, and this year we're going to double them. But... What if, and I emphasize, what if, we don't get the thunder we need to grow our plants? Nick was now thinking in the thoughts of an owner. Good question, my friend, a very good question. We can provide complete protection. For an extra 10%, crop insurance is available through the SEC. A puzzled look crossed the ex-CEO's face. Did you say the SEC? Sure did, my friend. The Spaghetti Exchange Commission. Nick put his hand on Giuseppe's shoulder and looked him straight in the eye. How much money are we talking about, Mr. Bandini? The mood was getting serious. A hundred grand cash, plus ten percent for the hedge fund and ten percent for crop insurance, answered the big Italian. In return, you get 50% of the derivatives of the crop. I keep my half for growing the plants. This was serious business.
I'll have to think it over. That's a lot of money right now, and I want Penny to have some input, so we will need some time to think about it. We could sleep on it and get back to you in a day or two. Just then, the phone rang in the house. Maria excused herself from showing Penny her grandmother's bedspreads and quilts to answer the call. Hello, Bill. Yes. Yes. So glad you're back. Yes, I'll call him. Honey, it's for you. It's Bill Gates. Tell him I'm in a meeting and I will call him back at four. The big grandfather clock in the hall was striking 3 p.m. He said to tell you it's a go if you know what that means, and he is back in Seattle. Giuseppe turned his dark eyes straight toward Nick. Do you want in or not? In the wonderful world of business, deals sometimes present themselves in the most unusual places. Huge transactions are consummated over martinis and steak sandwiches at O'Brien's on Fifth Avenue in New York. But this was different. Nick was well aware that time was of the essence. Important business decisions had to be made quickly, lest the opportunities dissolve in the wink of an eye. Good executives are worth millions to corporations because they have the experience and knowledge to move quickly. Nick was at the top of his game. A hundred grand was chicken feed, and he knew he had to act now or Bill Gates would snap it up in an instant. He told Giuseppe he was in. That's a hundred thousand plus ten for the hedge fund and ten for crop insurance. Is that correct? We will cut you a check and have it to you in a few days. It will have to be all cash, said the big farmer. Nick was afraid that the deal which was so close might slip away through his fingers, like sand in an hourglass at the very last minute. He walked oh so slowly to the jaguar, scratching his head, kicking the big cottonwood leaves away with his alligator shoes. Should he or should he not dip into his cash? This cash was meant to cover his living expenses for the next several months. The grandfather clock in the hall slowly struck 3.45. He took the briefcase to the table and set it down. It was covered in leopard skin and adorned with sterling silver buckles engraved with his initials. He opened it and counted $120,000 bills. The business partner smiled and shook hands heartily. Giuseppe hugged Nick, nearly suffocating the little New Yorker. The deal is sealed with a handshake, which is customary with ranchers. It is the honor system, and it is never questioned. This was quite foreign in the offices of Wall Street, but Nick liked the custom, and now that he is a rancher, he will be quick to adapt. Nick was reminded to be sure to set aside the week of November 12th for the big jackalope hunt with Boone, Warren, and the other partners. He assured Giuseppe that he'll be there. He was looking forward to it completely and would buy his first new rifle for the big hunting event. The women laughed and danced a little dance to celebrate the new entrance into the tight-knit business family. A hearty toast was raised with burgundy served in the finest Wedgwood cut glass crystal. The Easterners were invited to stay in the upstairs guest bedroom and sleep under Grandma's quilt, but they declined as they were anxious to be on their journey. It had been such an eventful day. Maria prepared a beautiful basket lunch that was packed with a vintage cabernera and a little container of green olives, three cheeses, and a small loaf of sourdough bread fresh from her own oven. There were tears in all eyes as the departing guests and the valued business partners waved goodbye from the beautiful Jaguar. As the car left the driveway and faded from sight, the Bandinis turned to each other and jumped for joy. They hugged, they kissed, they high-fived, and they danced. Maria stood back, admired her husband with the tears of joy in her eyes. He was the hero of her heart. She had never been prouder of his fine work, and she made sure he knew just how proud she was.
My wonderful, wonderful actor, you have just turned in a Tony-winning award performance. I have never seen you play the part of Giuseppe Bandini with such feeling. Never had you played it with such love, such heart, such emotion. It is the best acting of your long, long career. You have improved with each and every performance. You make your characters live. It's as if the Bandinis are real living persons, farming real spaghetti plants. You are truly the most methodic of the method actors. You are my darling, my love. You are the finest actor I have ever shared the stage with. Bravo, bravo! Orson Welles III stepped back three steps and took a deep bow. Then he hugged and kissed his wife and his favorite supporting actress, Jane. Then he threw make-believe kisses to the imaginary audience just beyond the non-existent footlights. The two veteran thespians then took a second bow, acknowledging the thunderous applause that was heard by their ears only. They had just pulled off the best off-Broadway performance of their lives. It was the third and final performance of their 10-day Kansas run. I owe the success of this performance to my beautiful, wonderful wife. We did it together, my darling. You bring out the best in my work. We are the best husband-wife team ever to graduate from the Catskills. We are the Tracy Hepburn, the Bogart Bacall team of the Kansas Plains. The props, the setting, the staging, everything has been perfect, he said, spreading his arms to include the vast Kansas fields. By the way, how did you do that phone call bit from Bill Gates? It was spectacular. It was sheer luck, darling. Blind, sheer, wonderful luck. And the timing was perfect. It could have not been better if it were scripted. It was Bill and Linda Miller. The Carnival Princess has just docked in Miami, and they are spending the night there, and they will catch a morning flight into Kansas City, get their car out of storage, and drive home Friday. They thanked us over and over again for house-sitting. They hope to start combining their soybeans next Monday. Jane could not help but over-exaggerate every sentence. Her delivery, elocution, and timing were perfected and honed, by thousands of performance in every genre, from Broadway to the Borscht Circuit and some forgettable Hollywood gigs in between. None, however, has ever matched the magnitude, profitability, of playing Kansas farmers. They had reached the pinnacle of the Actors Guild, and they had the money to prove it. They had made more money in the last ten days than in all the years they had been professional actors. They had the cash to buy what they always longed for but could only dream of, a farm of their very own, a hog farm in Nebraska. No more two-week stands. No more packing and unpacking. They liked the farm life and were ready for a change. Nick and Penny speeded westward, anxious to see what was over the next horizon and what new adventures were in store for the wealthy New Yorkers. Their minds were at ease, comfortable in the fact that they had met such nice, humble folks as the Bandinis. They were so strikingly different from the people that they had interacted with on a daily basis in the Big Apple. City people were so insecure, goal-oriented, and interested only in money. Kansas is such a welcome change, such real and genuine people, not phonies like in New York. An early afternoon thunderstorm had crashed and boomed all around them as they drove west. The rain had pelted down in sheets, tap-tapping on the jaguar's roof. The big dark clouds were clearing now, and the sweet smell of fresh-cut alfalfa once again drifted into the car and filled the air. Nick knew that this bode well for his new farming adventure. He remembered Giuseppe telling him that the plants needed plenty of thunder to make them germinate. The clouds were moving quickly across the sky as they stopped early that afternoon. Penny had picked a wonderful little motel with an inviting blue-water swimming pool. After changing into his Speedo, with a cool, frosty lemonade in hand, 
Nick thought he would like to talk to Pickens and introduce himself. After several unsuccessful tries at information, Nick finally got the number of T. Boone Pickens Incorporated, Dallas, Texas. He dialed the number as he propped his feet up on the poolside lounge. He waited to talk to his new partner in spaghetti farming. He had some questions to ask. A very sugary mechanical voice answered, You have reached the world headquarters of T. Boone Pickens, Incorporated. To reach the cattle ranching operations, say the word moo. To reach the oil drilling operations, say the word Cadillac. To reach our windmill operations, say the word whish. To reach the natural gas headquarters, say boom. For more options, stay on the line for an operator. Nick waited. Several minutes of western swing music by Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys gave Nick time to prepare his questions. The operator answered, How may I direct your request? Nick was sure she sounded like a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. I would like to speak to Pickens. I'm his partner in the Kansas spaghetti operation. Nick was sure she would understand. But she didn't. What operation did you say? Spaghetti, was his one-word reply. The line went dead. He hit redial, and when the robot answered, he hit O for the cheerleader. You again? Yes, you see, we're partners, and I need to talk to him. Look, Mr. Whatever-Your-Name-Is, Mr. Pickens is in an important conference with Al Gore, and he left word not to be disturbed. Nick would not take no for an answer. The cheerleader put him on hold while she dialed the executive suite on the 40th floor, overlooking all of downtown Dallas. Sorry to bother you, Mr. P., but there is some idiot on the phone jabbering something about spaghetti. Put him on, Pickens said, to her complete surprise. You got to hear this, Al. This is the third nutcase that's called me this week with some cockamamie BS about spaghetti farming and hunting jackalopes in Kansas. Al smiled and reminded T that jackalopes had become extinct in the Pleistocene era due to global warming. Pickens here, said the millionaire oil man. Mr. Pickens, this is J. Nicholas Worthmore formerly CEO of Citibank and Trust, New York City. I have just recently purchased 1,000 acres of spaghetti adjacent to your ranch in Kansas. I just wanted to introduce myself. I will be joining you and Warren at the annual jackalope hunt in November. Now, you see, I, I don't own a gun, and I thought perhaps you could give me some advice on what kind of a gun I should buy. Pickens and Gore were laughing so hard they could hardly contain themselves. Pickens leaned back in his high-backed leather chair, propped his custom-made alligator boots on his desk, and slowly drawled, Mr. Worthington, I hate to give you this kind of bad news, but there is no such thing as a spaghetti farm in Kansas. All that grows in Kansas is corn, Wheat and soybeans. Wheat looks like tall grass. Corn is higher than your head with yellow ears of corn. And the soybean is a knee-high green plant with a white blossom on it this time of year. Spaghetti doesn't grow on plants at all. It's made out of flour and water. There are no such animals as jackalopes. I don't know Warren Buffett, and I don't own anything in Kansas. You're the third guy this week that's called with this story. Partner, you have been hornswoggled, hogtied, and branded as a sucker. In short, you have been screwed. Now, if you will excuse me, I have to get back to selling my wind farms. Nick did not know the meanings of these words. They were not in his vocabulary. But in somewhat less than a New York minute, the picture became painfully clear. 
the truth was starting to slowly soak into the genius's mind. The light bulb didn't suddenly flash on. It just flickered and began glowing like a candle. How could he have been so naive? Could it be that the wheels in his brain were spinning so fast that they somehow failed to gain traction to the most mundane of the simple facts? He thanked Pickens and apologized for his social blunder. Then he pushed the unbutton on his phone. He could not imagine how he, the smartest, shrewdest, most calculating mind in New York City finance, could get swindled by some dumb, simple farmer in Kansas. Nick found it hard to bring himself to swallow such devastating news. But there it was, like a lump in his throat that would not go down. How could such ruthless people such as the Bandinis take advantage of honest people like Penny and me, he thought. Just how will he ever break the bad news to Penny? She loved the Bandinis and was looking forward to their lasting friendship. It was just awful to think the Bandinis could take their money. This was not investor money. It was their own money. It was real money. It wasn't just paper. It was cash. By now that cash was on its way to Nebraska. The Wells, also known as the Bandinis, were on their way to their new life on their very own hog farm. They had hurriedly packed their scant belongings into a well-traveled curved-top trunk, covered with decals, reflecting its thousands of miles traveled. They took down their La Pasta Vista sign and tidied up the miller's house that they had been house-sitting. They reluctantly packed their beloved Ford 150 pickup and drove out of the curved driveway under the giant cottonwood trees for the last time. They looked both ways and then turned north on Kansas, U.S. 69. No more of the gypsy life of the itinerant thespian. No more packing and unpacking. No more two-week stands fleecing stupid people that are too dumb to understand the clarity of reality. Oh, it had been great fun, and it paid them more than any engagement they had ever played. It was the most wonderful test of any actor's life. But it was time to stop these performances and start life anew with their very own hog farm. The sun had begun its daily journey to meet the western horizon. The huge orange ball of summer fire was setting now, and evening was fast approaching. Soon the full moon of harvest time would be rising in the east, but for now, many small flashes of lightning were illuminating the western sky. The giant crimson curtain was slowly dropping as it would on the closing night of a long-running Broadway production. All was quiet once again on the Kansas prairie. All the world is a stage, and we are but actors, said William Shakespeare. There's a sucker born every minute, said P.T. Barnum. And never underestimate a Kansas farmer, Jim Benelli. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks. Thank you. 
That was Jim Benelli reading Spaghetti Farming in Kansas. We usually don't get many satires on Valley Writers Read, but this was a good one. Here is what Calvin Trilling says about satires. In modern America, anyone who attempts to write satirically about the events of the day finds it difficult to concoct a situation so bizarre that it may not actually come to pass. And with all the shenanigans that you hear about being perpetrated in our financial markets, including deceptive lending practices and various kinds of Ponzi schemes, it probably wouldn't surprise anybody if some slick promoter really did sell spaghetti farms out there in Kansas. Enough said. Friends, as we told you at the beginning, our author tonight, Jim Benelli, is a retired airline pilot who, besides writing short stories, is an avid skier who's just written a book called Ski Tales of the High Sierra, which relates the history of two ski resorts, China Peak and Sierra Summit. We want to thank Jim for his story tonight and hope that maybe he's got another satire up his sleeve for next year. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our author will be Valerie Schultz. And in the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story. Until we meet again, good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.